one of my principles of pastoral ethos and demeanor is not to draw attention to myself and my appearance um, as much as possible. But I feel like I just need to get, just get this over this because I'm sure some of you are looking at me and you're trying not to laugh. Um, I have a mustache. That's all right. It's okay. It's my Advent mustache. It grows in longing for the coming of Christ. Um, sometimes I like to do this. Just um, It's okay to laugh at me and not to take me all that seriously. Um, that's an important thing. Um, but on the other hand, um, the Word of God is serious, and the, and the Lord speaks to us. And so it's a helpful reminder that... Uh, I am a, a, a flawed and foolish instrument on behalf of the Lord. And so as you hear, hopefully this does not distract you from hearing God's word this morning. Um, we we um, are in the series of Advent, and um, I decided each, each Sunday I keep coming back to this text on 1 Corinthians 13. And I've decided just the rest of Advent, I'm going to preach this text because there's just so much here. Every, every week, I'm like, okay, that's another section. And so let's really uh, finish out this series in Advent and looking on the meaning of love from 1 Corinthians 13. And this morning, uh, the title of the sermon is, is, um, is not what's in your bulletin. It's the title in, of the sermon is Love of Others, Love of Self. And again, I want to read 1 Corinthians uh, 13 to you. And we'll get started. And Paul writes, and I I will show you a a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries of all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ceases. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Pray with me. Lord, we pray you uh, teach us about love this morning, what it means to love ourselves, what it means to love one another, but most importantly, what it means to be loved by you. I pray that we would all come away with a deep sense of assurance that we are loved by you. Um, deeply. And because of this, we are able to love one another. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. As I was going through this sermon again, it occurred to me that 
This is a, is a kind of a difficult sermon, potentially, to understand. It's about love. And I apologize. Hopefully it's not too, too conceptual. Um, but it reminds me, when we think about love in our culture, we often think about love as, as an emotion or a feeling or something um, that's sort of there that I just kind of respond to. And uh, what you find in the scriptures, and especially in this passage, is there's, there's deep theological meaning and reflection on the meaning of love. And so uh, not every Sunday hopefully will be as, as complex as today, um, uh, but I just wanted to give you a warning. Hopefully it's not the case. I can't seem to make up my mind whether I want to wear these glasses or not. I'm going to leave them on. Uh, perfect love, as I said last week, is the final form of what it means to be a human being that's, that's fully redeemed. When we become perfect in our loving, we become perfect in our humanity. Uh, this is what I introduced last week and what we explored in 1 Corinthians 13 on this, this great passage on love. According to Paul, the whole cosmos is ordered around love. That's because God is love. Love is the fundamental law of the universe. And that means that right living is learning to align ourselves, our own lives, with the grain of the universe as love. So last week I, I introduced to you this, this idea about this passage where I talked about it as the hermeneutics of love. Now I know that word hermeneutics is unfamiliar with many of you, but hermeneutics is simply means the, the art and the science of interpretation. It's often a, a word that's applied to how we read texts, how we interpret their meaning, but it, it has broad application. And what Paul is doing in this passage a, as, a, as a hermeneutics or love is that he is giving us, um, he's teaching us how to read the universe, if you will, in the light of love. And so he gives us account of how to read and interpret our own lives, our character, our own story, but, but the meaning of the cosmos in the light of love. And so last week I focused on two principles of interpretation. Um, I encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon. Uh, and I, I frame them as distinctions though. And this, this morning I wanna just wrestle with one big distinction, which is at the heart of this text. And it is the distinction between self-love and benevolence. And benevolence is just the word Another way to talk about love of others. So I want to I wanna, I wanna really reflect on the difference between self-love and benevolence. Self-love, right? We know what that is. It's pretty straightforward. It refers to how we make our own happiness the object of our care and affection. That's what it means to love oneself, is to, to seek your own happiness. Benevolence, on the other hand, is not... Love that's directed towards myself, but it's love that's directed out of myself towards others, to other people. Benevolence is when I make the happiness of other people my own, the object of my own love and happiness, right? So that's what benevolence is. Uh, Self-love is to seek my own happiness, and benevolence, or love of others, is to make the happiness of others my own happiness. Okay, so this seems like a really straightforward distinction, right? Self-love, other love. What could be harder? But the reality is this, is that it's actually much more difficult in our own experience to make this distinction. We're prone to confuse 
are loving ourselves and loving other people. And, and what ends up happening is we confuse and think that we're being benevolent when actually we're loving selfishly, right? And so this morning, really, my sermon is focused on very narrowly on making sense of one verse in, in this passage, and it's that verse in verse 5. It's just a phrase, love does not seek its own, or love is not self, self-seeking. Um, love is not self-seeking. In a more colloquial way, we could say love is not selfish. Right? In many ways, the whole passage, all, everything that Paul is trying to do here, is to try to teach us the difference between selfish love, a self-centered love, and genuine love of the other. Again, it's, it's, very, um, it's very easy for us to see selfish love in others, <laughs> uh, but it's hard for us to see it in our own lives. And so I want to give us a few tools for, for kind of reflecting on that, that in our lives. Now, what makes distinguishing self-love and benevolence hard is that in reality, there's no such thing as selfless love. There's no such thing as selfless love. You, you cannot actually love any person, or even God for that matter, in a purely selfless way. Now, I do think there's such a thing as selfless love. You know, when we talk about that, I'll come back to this. But the point is this. We, can, we never truly leave ourselves behind when we love others. It's not like I can just be like, okay, I don't care about myself or my happiness at all, and I'm going to direct my attention on this other person. Um, all loving of others presumes that we're loving ourselves, even as we're loving them. That's why I think it gets, love gets so hard in us to distinguish and discern. Um, to put it another way, love of others can never become something in which we're completely disinterested um, in loving them from our own self. And again, I know this might sound surprising to hear, um, but it's actually what Jesus teaches. Uh, Remember what Jesus says about the two great commandments? I quoted them last week. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And this is the first commandment, the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus presupposes that our own self-loving is a thing that we do even as we love our neighbor, right? Jesus doesn't say you should love your neighbor instead of yourself, or that you should love your neighbor more than yourself, or that you should love your neighbor and neglect and despise yourself. No, he says you should love your neighbor as yourself. And there's, I think, a very, very profound point that Jesus is making here that we need to understand to grasp the nature of true loving. And it has to do with there's, there's a symmetry. When love is right, there's a symmetry between self-love and love of the others. Now, let me, let me just try to cash this out a little. Love of others and love of self is not it's not a zero-sum equation. What do I mean by zero-sum equation? This is very important, I think, to understand. A zero-sum way of thinking about the world is to say that if one person is to advance, 
Another person has to fall behind. If one person is going to win, somebody has to lose. Right? This is, a, this is thinking about love in such a way that if I love you, I have to love myself less. Love is like, it's, it's, it's like, a, it's like a cake. There's only so many slices in the cake, and you have to sort of partition it out, right? This is what it means to have a zero-sum way of thinking about love. And this is the way we tend to think about love. It says that if I increase in my love for you, that I have to decrease in my love for myself, right? When we love others, however, this is not how God's economy works, right? Love in God's economy and God's universe is not a scarce resource. When we love others, it doesn't mean that we have to stop loving ourselves. And I think this is such an important uh, point because our culture now really hinges in, in a great many political culture war debates about the nature of love as human beings, right? And love is, is understood um, as a kind of impossible choice between winners and losers. Right? If I love you, I must sacrifice myself and my freedom. Right? And I think in our therapeutic culture, which more and more has emphasized the priority of self-love, I need to love myself, I need to be good to myself, and oftentimes the way that gets interpreted is, I have to let go of these other loving relationships because they're taking too much time or energy, or they're costing me too much, and I can't love myself properly. Right? That's, again, that's that zero-sum way of thinking about love. And that, that's very, you know, um, you know, very prominent in our culture. But traditional culture is not any better. Because traditional culture is the exact opposite. Which is like, you have to love yourself less in order to love the other person more. And that might mean that you, you, you're willing to destroy your, your own humanity in order to do that. Right? Again, it's, it's the opposite extreme. They're, they're two sides of the same coin. It's a view, a vision of love in which there's just only so much in the world to go around. And we're always trying to divvy it up between one another. And so it all becomes about power. Right? This is not the kind of universe that God created. God created the kind of world in which love is not a scarce resource, but something that when our loving is properly ordered and oriented and exercised, it doesn't lead to less love, but actually more love. It's not zero sum. So the opposite of loving others is not love of self. The opposite of loving others is selfish love. <laughs> That's the opposite. That's the opposite of loving others is selfish love. It's love that seeks only its own interests. And here again, I, we need to make Another careful distinction. Lo selfish love is a distortion and a twisting of proper love. Now again, contrary to, I think, the, maybe the way we, we would tend to think of it, that self-love is not a consequence of the fall. In other words, the fact that we love ourselves or want to love ourselves is not because we're sinners. Self-love is actually part of what it means to be an image bearer. Self-love is what it means to have a will and have freedom and choices and desires. It's what it means to live in a world that God created that is full of things that are pleasing and, and pleasurable and, and good that we seek and desire for our own happiness. Self-love, again, as I said in the beginning, 
is, is, our, is, is our desire to seek our own happiness. And I don't care who you are, <laughs> you're always seeking your own happiness. You don't have to be taught this. This is why Jesus doesn't teach us. You don't find the Bible teaching us about self-love because it's an instinct. I mean, self-love is necessary for the species to continue to exist. It's how we continue to will our own existence. Whether that be food, water, shelter, or relational needs, right? And I want to really focus on the, the, those aspects of our relational needs. Rem let's go back to the garden before the fall. God creates Adam alone in the garden. He brings all the animals to him. And all the animals are, they're just not like him. He just, he doesn't really jive or click with any of them. None of them are, are companions. And then God says, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make for him a suitable helper. And so God, what he does is he puts Adam to, into a deep sleep and he creates from his side the woman, Eve, and then brings the woman to him. And the first thing that Adam says is, aha, at last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Here is one who is like me, but not me. And there is this sense that Adam has lived his whole life up to this point with this sense of incompletion that he was never able to put his finger on, but now that he sees the woman, he finally figures it out. And they cleave, right? They come together and they become one flesh. This is the deep mystery of marriage and romantic love, or, or eros as we call it. But I think it's important not to just limit this story to people who are married or romantic love. Because the image here of the man and the woman being drawn together is, is actually an archetype for all human relationships. And it's this, is that we seek to find our completion, our fulfillment in the other. And so we, we have the sense of I need the other and I only become realized or full in loving the other and being united with that person. This is eros, right? It's, it's horizontal. It's, and don't think of eros simply in terms of sexual or erotic love. Eros is, is our desire to find completion by being united with another. Again, think of what God says. It is not good for man or woman to be alone. Human beings were built for relationship. And so our instinct to love, to look at another and see you have something I need and want, which is good for me, I wanna be united with you, that is, again, it's part of our self-love, it's how God created us. Otherwise, we would go through the world as solitary you know, individuals just doing our own thing. It is not good for man or woman to be alone. And so we seek our completion and fulfillment in others, right? We are relational beings. It's central to what it means to be an image bearer. Think about the God who created us. This God is not a solitary God in the sky. This God is one God, but three persons, a community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are created in His image and likeness, which means we ourselves are communal beings. So. Now, do you see how self-love as a desire for happiness 
moves us out of ourselves. It moves us out into the nature, into the world, into life, into relationships, into marriage. It expands us. And self-love, when it is holy, expands us and increases our capacity. Our desire to find completion in the other coincides with the perfect love of the other, right? And so the effect of my love on the other, <clears throat> the effect of my love for the other is that it expands us. It makes us larger. It moves me on the narrow confines of my own sort of little world and universe. That's what healthy love and self-love does. It moves us out of ourselves. Um, but after the fall, something happens, right? When sin enters the picture, the image of God in us becomes distorted and self-love becomes selfish love. And what happens to the human heart when self-love becomes selfish love? In the words of, of Augustine, he uses this phrase which Luther, Martin Luther uses a lot, talks about incurvatus se, which is a Latin word which means to be curved in on oneself. So that's the image of sin. That what's, that's what sin does to us. It's like an ingrown toenail. Sort of just grows in on itself. And that's what happens to the human heart. And that's what sin does to the human heart. It, it turns us in on ourselves. See, true love is meant to expand you out. Increase your world. Your capacity for relationships and, and life. But selfishness turns us in. You remember what Dr. Seuss says about the Grinch? and the Grinch who stole Christmas, he had a heart that was two sizes smaller than the average human heart. Think about it, right? He had a heart that was two sizes smaller. Why was he so upset by all the Christmas and cheer? Because his heart was too small, right? This is a very, uh, now this is a picture of what sin does to the human heart. It shrinks our hearts. <laughs> it literally shrinks our hearts, narrows our humanity. Now, I think few of us exhibit the level of selfishness that the Grinch has. The Grinch was a misanthrope, which means he just hated people. And you kind of knew where he stood, right? You're like, I know he just doesn't like people and he doesn't like me. But the rest of us, we have all kinds of people in our life that we love and that, that we, we want to be with, right? We're not, we're not like the Grinch. And yet, how do we know when our love is being selfish? And here's where... I want to introduce you to, to another helpful distinction in how we love. And it's the distinction in our love in between love as use and love as enjoyment. There's a, there's a way we love people in subtle ways and we, 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 we use them. But then the alternative is we're not to use people but to enjoy people. Let me, let me sort of cash this out a little bit more. Selfish love is, is transactional love. It approaches relationships in terms of how useful they are to us, right? Um, again, this is a kind of consumer orientation towards relationships in the world, which is really the dominant way that our culture thinks about relationships, right? So when we meet a person or we're thinking about whether it's a romantic relationship or a business relationship or whatever it might be, um, we're asking ourselves this question, maybe not in such crass terms, but um, is this person useful to me? Will this person satisfy my needs? Will this person enhance my life? Um, um, will this person make me a better person? Um, 
See, selfish love in the extreme, again, we never do this in such crass terms, but selfish love tends to objectify people and to see them as instruments, things that are used for our own good, right? Because again, remember, we all seek our, our fulfillment and completion in others. But selfish love really um, tends to reduce people to things to be used. And again, we do this without intentionally thinking about it or knowing that we're doing it. And it's hard to discern. Because the reality is, is that initially when we're drawn into relationships with others, whether that's a romantic relationship or a friendship, um, the thing that attracts us to people are things about them that are good and admirable, right? Virtues or, or looks or, or wealth or, or skill or expertise. There's all these things that if, we, if we're drawn to a person, they have something that we find attractive about them. That's natural, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But if, it, if our relationships only stay there, that's when they just become about use, right? That's when they, people are just instruments. And, and one test, there's a lot of different tests, but let me just give you one test for whether this is true in your life or not. Whether you, your relationships are use-based or enjoyment-based, is that when the relationship becomes troubled, complicated, a lot of work, and difficult, and, or maybe it doesn't bring you the, the joy or pleasure or happiness that you once had in it, what you do is you just break it off. You walk away. I mean, if that's the case, then, then it's very likely that really that relationship and the basis of it was, was, was a consumer-based relationship, right? Again, it's all right for relationships to start with a sense of attraction to others because of goods they have and admirable things about them. But mature love moves from desire um, towards a person as, as something that's good for me and myself to a desire for the other person's good and happiness. That, that's where mature love goes. It's, it starts with attraction, but it, it moves beyond that. And this is, this is what I mean by enjoyment. Love as enjoyment, it, it treats a person that we love not only as a means to our own happiness, but as an end in themselves. That, I mean, that's how we all want to be loved. <laughs> you all want to be loved in this way. You want to be loved not because of just the qualities in you that make you admirable, but you want to be loved just for yourself, right? Because what happens if you lose those things that people liked about you where they stop, and they stop loving you? No, we all want to be loved in this sense in which we're an end. And that word I'm, I'm using here is, is, is enjoyment. So true love is to make the happiness of other person the object of my own happiness. This is, this is mature love. True love is to make the happiness of other people the object of my own happiness. This, again, is the meaning of benevolence. See, when we love this way, we're willing to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of the other. We're willing to give up our freedom in order to bring about the happiness of the other. And this is what, I, this is what we mean when we talk about self, selfless love. But what's interesting is Jonathan Edwards reminds us that, again, this is not the opposite of self-love. Let me read you a little Edwards. He says, what can, what can more properly be called love than to place one's own happiness in the thing itself? That's what he means by making the happiness of the other your own happiness. A person may place the hap their happiness considerably in the other and the goods of others and the goods of the neighbor and the desiring of their happiness, which consists in seeking their good. They love themselves. They love their own happiness. But yet this is not selfishness 
because it is not confined to self-love because that person's love flows out in such a channel as to take in others within himself. The self which he loves is, as it were, enlarged and multiplied so that those same acts wherein he loves himself, he loves others. So, okay, again, it's just this image is that when I love others and their happiness as my own happiness, what that does to me as it's the opposite of selfish love, is it actually increases my heart. It increases my size and capacity as a human being, rather than selfish love, which shrinks the heart and limits how much can flow through it. And here's, here's, you know, I hope this is not too labored, but do you see how this kind of love breaks open a world and a culture that thinks about love in a zero-sum way, where there's just winners and losers? No longer is love a scarce resource, one I need to worry about dividing up between myself and others. Rather, in making the happiness of others the object of my own happiness, I no longer feel like the world is a place where I'm also choosing between myself and others. In choosing to love others, I'm loving myself. And in choosing to love others and seek their happiness, I find my own happiness and well-being. The, the, the one natural relationship in which this kind of love ordinarily, not often, and definitely not perfectly, manifests itself is a relationship between um, parents and children. As a parent, and you, you, once you have children, you have this experience, which is your happiness is tied to the happiness of your own children. When your children are happy and thriving, ordinarily, not always, you are happy and thriving. It just, it's, it's like an instinct. And it's a, it's a very unique experience that's hard to have, but it's, it happens. And, and in a way, it's, it's a true model of God's love, which is why the family is so important. We're all meant to experience this kind of love. Tim Keller uh, says often, um, I've heard him say that, he goes quoting his mother-in-law, says, um, you know, a parent is only as happy as their least happy child. A parent is only as happy as their least happy child. And I, I think this is true as a parent because your own life is so tied and up with the love and happiness of that child and you're willing to set aside yourself and sacrifice and go without sleep and go without all kinds of things. Rearrange your life. And, and it, it's painful and you're choosing your child over yourself at times, but you do it gladly and willingly. Why? Because at the end of the day, your happiness is really bound up with that child. This is covenantal love. This is covenantal love, benevolence. And it's the opposite of consumer love. It's not motivated by those things in the relationship which are necessarily beneficial or advantageous to us. But we just enjoy the person for who they are. When this love characterizes our life and our relationships, what happens is this, is that we become less concerned uh, with how another person makes us feel or how they benefit us or what we're getting out of it. And more and more we, we, we end up focusing on that, that person's just inexhaustible dignity and irreplaceability in our lives. Where we love a person not because of all these goods that maybe have initially attracted us to them, but we just love them for themselves. And it's like, 
you know, um, it's this idea of like, you know, a husband asks, or a wife, or a husband asks, or why, why do you love me, you know? And, and, you know, you think about it, and you play that logic out, well, I love you because you're attractive. Well, what if, what if I, I'm no longer attractive, what if I'm fat, and I have a creepy mustache? Will you still love me then, <laughs> right? Well, I love you because, you know, uh, you provide for the family, and you're responsible, and you do things around the house, and, and you care for me. Well, what if I lose my job, and I'm immobile, and I can't do things around the house? Will you still love me? See, you know, you keep going it. All the things that we want to be loved for, at the end of the day, like, there, there has to be this, this, this ground floor in which I'm loved simply for being, who I, for being me. We all want this love in our lives. We all need this love in our lives. And, and true love that really treats people and their happiness as our own happiness gets to this place where we, we reach the deep value of a person and their irreplaceability and their dignity. And then when this happens, our love becomes free. It becomes non-manipulative. And again, we're all created for this love. We all need it. It's an essential need. It's like oxygen, food, shelter. Okay, but how do we love like this? How do we love like this? This kind of love is difficult and challenging. And we fail it at every day, and even the best, the greatest lovers in our midst fail at it every day. And the love that I have described is how God loves us in Christ. We ought to love one another. Why? <laughs> because God loved us first. I mean, it's such a simple truth. And we love others because God loved us first. In Christ, God has made the happiness of his creatures central to his own happiness. This is the meaning of Christmas. This is the significance of the incarnation. Love has come in the flesh. In Christ, God has made his, our happiness central to his own happiness. And he does this in an incredible and radical way by becoming human, by assuming frail and feeble human flesh into his divine nature for all eternity. As Karl Barth said, God does not want to be God without us. God doesn't want to be God without us. The incarnation is about how God has made room and space in the divine nature in order to have humanity at his side for all eternity. And what makes us lovable as persons and able to love others is not, again, anything in us inherent that is lovable, but simply the fact that we're created by God in his image, and because of that, we have dignity, and we have beauty and irreplaceability. We only learn to love others, not by basing our love directly on what makes them worthy or lovable, but only when we love them in Jesus Christ, who is very God and very man, the perfect image bearer, who redeems our dignity and rescues the image of God from being eradicated in us. He is the one who is truly lovable, and it's only in him that we can love one another. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for Christ. We give you thanks that you didn't want to be God without us, that you have made our happiness uh, central to your own happiness to the point where your son became human, took on flesh, took on the frailty, the suffering, 
who even went to death on our behalf, in order that you might have us and secure our eternal happiness in you. Lord, these are weighty things. Help us to learn to see and to read our lives in the light of your love. We give you thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.